Amen. Well, glad to worship with you today. If you have your Bibles, make sure you are turned to Galatians chapter 1. That's where we're going to begin this morning as we enter a new series called No Other Gospel. We're going to be looking at the book of Galatians, and this is going to take us all the way, believe it or not. This is so depressing to me in some ways that this is how fast time goes. We'll walk through Galatians, and it'll be Advent. Legitimately, week by week, we're going to walk through this book, and, and before you know it, it will truly be the Christmas season. But we're going to spend a lot of time in this book, and we've done this with a number of, of New Testament epistles, but also Old Testament works like Jonah. We've been trying so hard as a faith family to walk through the scriptures in such a way that we could understand them contextually. Right, That we're not just pulling verses out of the air to support the things that, w- that we think we want to say, but instead we're saying, look, we're going to look at this whole writing and see what God's Spirit has communicated to his people as he's carried along authors and written these words, penned to very specific folks. These, are, these words that we're going to read today are penned to churches in and around this area of Galatia, but ultimately they are for you and I. They're for our instruction. They're for us to understand the depth and breadth of what God has done for us in Jesus. And Paul's chief concern as he writes this letter to this group of churches is this. You've turned away. You've turned away from the only way. And there is no hope apart from the gospel of Jesus. We're going to look and see why Paul says this today together. Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, we're going to read through verse 9. It says this, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you. And want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. This is the word of the Lord to which we say together. Thanks be to God. Paul writes all these letters that you find throughout the New Testament. And one of the things that you really, really see from the outset in so many of these is his encouragement. It's his affirmation. It's this distinctive group of people that he's writing to that ultimately he has this deep relationship with in many cases. Or at least has a relationship very closely with those to whom he's writing. Right? He's got a friend, like, like, an, like Epaphroditus, people that are in Ephesus. He might not be there, but he's got someone he knows that is in this place. And so he writes these encouraging things, and he talks about all the ways the Lord is working, and he affirms them like he does with the Philippians 
that's what we find in almost every circumstance when we look at Paul's writings. The unique thing about Galatians is it's not like that at all. On any level, Paul is, quite frankly, angry. He's disappointed and he's frustrated at this group of people who call themselves Christians and ultimately have forgotten and are turning away from truly the essence of all that Christ is. Now that sounds like a pretty condemning statement to say that these people are turning away from the very truth of who God is, and yet this is the thing that Paul is desiring to confront. And this might at this point sound like, man, well, that sounds bad for them. They shouldn't be doing that. That's, that's strange. This is a long time ago. What does that have to do with us? And here's what I would tell you. Absolutely everything. What we're going to look at today in this short passage has absolutely everything to do with you and I and how we relate to and how we understand and how we truly recognize who God is. Not what we might think about him with, with, a, with a distorted mind. Not what we might say we've heard, but really the essence truly of who God is, we're going to see and is found in this scripture. This, this writing, this letter that Paul gives to these Galatians is written somewhere around 49 to 50 AD. And it's really, really historically, I, th I think we could look back and see this very accurately dated. There's a lot of confidence that, that from historians and theologians, commentators, all these kind of people that, that do the work to understand these things, pseudographs, monographs, all that stuff. This really was written around this time. And what's so unique about that is that this is 15 or 20 years after Jesus's death and resurrection and ascension. So we're talking about like right after Jesus has been with people, Paul is writing this letter. The first Christians, the first people who come to know Jesus, specifically in Jerusalem, were Jewish Christians. They came from a background where they had a Jewish heritage, where truly... They saw Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses as, as fathers in their faith. But even this far along, 15, 20 years out, the word of Jesus has spread everywhere to a ton of people who ultimately have no Jewish background at all. They're from other places. They speak other languages. They're from other spots in and around the world. And one of the wild things that's happening here in Galatia is that these two groups are meeting. They're intersecting. There's this group of people who are Christians who come from a Jewish background with an incredible amount of history filled with beauty and the beauty of God's law, and they are encountering these other people who are Christians who don't have any of that history. They don't have any of that background. They don't have any of that faith lineage that's not a part of their life and who they are, and yet both have trusted in Christ. But the former group, those who have this lineage of faith, this relationship with God through old covenants, up until Jesus, have walked into this place in these churches in Galatia and said, the thing that you must do is follow the law. 
And they had some really specific ways in which they thought these Christians, these Gentile Christians, these people who didn't have this faith background, should actually follow the law. That they should be circumcised, that they should eat kosher foods, that they should have, have, have festivals and Sabbaths and all of these things according to the law that God has given. And they said that this was necessary for redemptive life and ultimately their faith. These teachers are presenting a different way of relating to God than God himself had intended. All of these laws, all of these things only pointed to Jesus who would fulfill them all. So Paul is ultimately concerned that there's this gospel, this good news, that in fact is really not good news at all. Because Paul's saying, look, you cannot add anything to what Christ has done. In doing so, it mitigates, it nullifies everything that Jesus is and has done, his person and work. And this is what Paul is concerned about when he writes this letter to the Galatians. We're going to see four specific things from the text today. And my Baptist heritage is coming out because we're going to do all the letter S. All right? Four S letters. Four things we're going to see in this text that help us understand what Paul is saying and the power of the gospel itself. The first thing is this, the source. We're going to look into verses, verse 1 very specifically and see the very source of the gospel. So the first thing is the source. The second thing is the substance. When we look into verses 3 and 4 today, and if you have your Bible, look down right now at 3 and 4. That's where we're going to see the substance of the gospel. The third thing in verses 6 through 9, we're going to see the solitary nature of the gospel, its solitary nature, its need for nothing else. And then fourth and finally, in verse 4, we're going to see the sufficiency of the gospel. Paul is concerned with the good news of what Jesus Christ has done. And this is how he begins in this letter. He says, Paul, an apostle. And then he gives this qualifier about why he's sent. Because that word apostle means sent, but the unique thing about that word is it doesn't just mean sent. It actually indicates that where a person is sent from, and that means they're sent from outside themselves. They're not someone who just goes. They're actually commissioned. They're actually sent, and this is one who has been sent from God. Look back into verse 1 and see this. Paul is an apostle, and it's qualified in this way. He's not from men, nor through man. This ought to remind us of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. Remember the last couple of weeks we've been talking about becoming gospel people, being centered on the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That the gospel, that, that we throw that word around a lot, but this is what it means. It's the good news, not of what we do or that we have done, of what Jesus has done on our behalf to reconcile us to God. To bring us into righteousness, and that means right relationship with God. Through the blood of Jesus' cross and his resurrection, we now have life and relationship with God. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. And if you remember, as we looked at this the last couple of weeks, there's something that, that's that it's often skipped over. But Paul says, look, I'm sent. I'm an apostle, not from man. That's not where I'm from. 
Because the gospel, the good news that he has is not from him. It actually came to him. So the source of the gospel is God himself. Look at what Paul does when he elicits and describes the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also, and look at that word, received. Received. So the gospel is not something that Paul has created. It's not something that he's invented, but also it's not something that he authors. The gospel came to Paul. So the source of what Paul is saying, he's adamantly stating, this does not come from me. You follow that logic? That for Paul to have received this means the source of the gospel has to come from outside himself. The gospel itself, this good news, is not a man-made thing. It actually comes from God. Now, you think about how Paul received the gospel. Turn to Acts chapter 9, and you can see the Damascus Road experience where Paul directly encounters Jesus himself. And in fact, Paul becomes an apostle in this moment because Jesus sends him truly sends him to go proclaim who he is. So the source is not Paul. The gospel is coming from the very God that he loves and serves, and it's concerning Jesus himself. If you read into Romans chapter 1 and this rich, incredible writing that Paul offers in the New Testament, one of the very first things he describes in chapter 1 is the gospel of God. And he talks about what it means. What is that? What is the gospel of God? And he uses these words. He says it is concerning the Son of God. This is what Paul means when he says concerning. Everything revolves around it. Everything orbits this. Everything surrounds Jesus himself. Jesus is the point of all things and ultimately the source of all good news. So Paul says, not from man nor through man, but through who? Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. The good news is not news that Paul has heard recently in his life. Because look, there's all kinds of gospels in this world that come to us from different places. All these versions of good news. That's what gospel means. So the gospel of Jesus Christ is radically different than all kinds of gospels that we hear. Look, here's the deal. Like, there's like gospel stuff happening in Nashville today, right? Like, I don't know when the last time Vandy scored 60 points was. It's been ages. I, it, may, it may have never happened. I don't know. There's things that are happening in your life, in your world, that are, that are gospel nature type things where good news has been proclaimed to you. You got a promotion. You got the job. Something happened. You won an award, an accolade. And your friend was healed. Someone you know is now cared for. All kinds of good news comes to us, but the source of all good news, the actual, real, true gospel, because Paul's going to say that these other things are a false gospel, the true gospel, the source of it is through Jesus himself and the God the Father. So Paul describes the source of the gospel, and look into verses 3 and 4, and you can see the substance of the gospel. This is what the gospel is, its essence, its actuality. 
It's Jesus Christ, in verse 3 and then into verse 4, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God and our Father. That culminates with what happens back in verse 1, that God the Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, raised him from the dead. This is the substance of the gospel. Because good news, I think, so often is, is told to us, given to us, we receive it in a passive way. It comes to us, and it ultimately is good news for a moment. It is good news in a temporary way, but long term, it doesn't satisfy. Look at the substance of the gospel, of what Jesus has done. It's not only that Jesus has given himself, but he's given himself for our sins. And then look at this. It's so hard to see in these little English words. But to deliver us, I, I, I can't describe to you the power of the finality of this. This is not to help us. This is not to make us better. Jesus gave himself for our sins to rescue us with finality. It is done. Truly, when Jesus utters these words, it is finished. There is great power here. Sin and death are defeated. This is why we can sing. This is, this is 1 Corinthians 15 too. Trample death, where's your sting? Death, where's your sting? Where's your victory? It no longer exists for the one who is in Christ because the substance, the reality, the truth of the gospel is that Jesus has delivered us fully and completely. We have been rescued from the sins and this present evil age. A world that is broken and tainted with sin. Not like the one that will be new to come. Jesus has saved us with finality. This is the substance. God gave himself, Jesus gave himself for our sins. God raised him from the dead. And notice this, that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Look at this, this is 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. Again, the substance, this is the substance. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is the truth of, the meat of, the substance of the gospel. Notice that this gospel, that this good news has nothing to do with us. Absolutely nothing. This is about what Jesus has done and accomplished on our behalf. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. You see the parallel here? And back in Galatians, it is for our sins. This is the purpose. To redeem us. Now we get to live in that resurrection life because of what Jesus has done. So Paul is clear to give this group of people the source of the gospel, the substance of the gospel. Look into verses 6 through 9, and you see its solitary nature. Now this is Paul being really, really angry. His language is salty, and he's challenging, and, and, and the way he says this is, quite frankly, insulting in so many ways. And it's meant to be that. Not so much that he would demean one's character, 
but instead that he would, with very direct speech, illuminate this group of people to the fact that all that they are, everything that marks them, the gospel of Jesus Christ, we've talked about this week after week, this is our longing as believers, that we would be marked by the good news of what Jesus has done in his life and death and resurrection for us, that that is the sum total, that's the substance, what Jesus has done is the substance ultimately of my life and yours, of who we are. In reality, not where we live or what we drive or what we do or what we have. No, but that we're characterized by the gospel. And Paul says, look, I am astonished. He's amazed. He's using this word that ultimately means I wonder at and I marvel at. He's saying, I cannot fathom. There's no way in his mind, infinitude, he can grasp the reality that these People who've heard the good news of Jesus have done this. Look at what he says. Have deserted God. Have run away from him. In rebellion have turned away from the very truth, the very hope, the very joy, the life, the beauty of the gospel. And then it's, they've turned away from Jesus who's called them. And they're turning to something. And it's a different gospel. It's a different gospel. They seem to think that there's good news to be found elsewhere. That the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is an amazing thing, but there's more. This is the lie that they've been sold in thinking that they have to do all these other rituals, all these other things. Paul says, you've turned away. And I can't even understand it, wrap my mind around. You've turned away to a different gospel. And then he says this, and it's brilliant what he says. You've turned away to this other thing. And then he says, actually, no, that doesn't exist. There is no other one. So this is the solitary nature of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. There actually is no other really effective, real, true, good news. This is the penultimate truth of all truth. And there's nothing that compares with it. And so Paul says, there's not another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. People who want to distort it. Now look, here is our challenge and why if you don't have any Jewish heritage, any Jewish background, I bet you're a lot more Jewish than you think. Because this is God's people who experience the beauty and the majesty of God in all that he did for them. Continually redeeming them, continually delivering them, continually saving them. And his longing, his call to them has constantly been to trust him, to have faith in him and what he's done for them. It's, it's the constant echo we see in the Old Testament, the picture of the God who is pursuing his people. And he longs for them to trust him. And God, as a wise Father, a loving father, gives these guardrails. He gives these laws. And almost everywhere you see law, you and I, I think we, we live in a world that, that's litigious. So we think when we see law, we think it means this rule that means to be followed, right? I've got to do this thing. I've got to keep this thing. I can't disobey this thing or there's some consequence. But ultimately, you really look back into the Old Testament. Everywhere you see law, it really means this. It means teaching. It means teaching. So this goes beyond some sort of like, I don't know, judicial 
type approach. But this is more powerful than that because it's ultimately the teaching of, the instruction of, the wisdom of God. And Paul's saying these people are saying Jesus is not enough. You've also got to do these things. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to eat the right foods. There's dietary laws that have to be followed. All of these things have to be done if you really, 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 really want to have a relationship with God. If you really want to be a part of the church truly. If you really want to be connected to God, reconciled to Him. It's everything that Jesus has done, but it's this stuff too. And Paul says that this is a distortion. It's a perversion. And ultimately, this is what it means. It means a reversal. So when Paul says distort there in that verse, this is what he means. That it is an, a total upending, an upheaval, and therefore a removal of the gospel. This is no gospel at all. Saying Jesus plus actions, Jesus plus behavior is no gospel at all. And here's the reality. You struggle with this, and so do I. Because we have it embedded into our minds... That our God desires good behavior. That's not the gospel. That's not the good news. In fact, that's terrible news. Because you're not any good. And I'm not either. You're not. I know it. Because I know you. In and of yourself, apart from the redemptive work of Christ and the indwelling spirit within you, you are not good. And a bunch of you know me, and as soon as you heard me say that, you're like, yeah, and you ain't either. And you're right. Apart from the Holy Spirit that resides in me, only because God has gifted me with faith to trust in him. And what Christ has done, there ain't a good thing in me. And we don't like that in our world. We just don't. We don't. We want to believe that we're good. But Paul says the solitary nature of the gospel is this. There is no other gospel and there's something better. There's something better than being good. It's called righteousness, and it's imputed to us. It is given to us. Christ literally gives us his righteousness. This is how powerfully Paul not feels. It's not just emotion that he has here, but how much he understands the very truth of who God is and what he's done in Jesus. This is what he says in verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one preached to you, let him be accursed. This guy's out here cursing angels, all right? Paul is saying if two things. One, if there's an angel that comes to you, can you imagine the reverence, the awe, the wonder the marvelous nature of seeing and witnessing an angel, I think if you and I experience that, we're going to be inclined to say, I'm going to go with what he says. Paul says, if that, if that angel preaches anything other than this gospel, curse him. You know what powerful this is? Paul says, put me in there too. He says, if we 
preached to you. So he's talking about him, Silvanus, all of the brothers. When he writes to these people in Galatia, he said, all the brothers who are with me, all of the folks that are with Paul, who are following Jesus, he says this. He says, if we ever try to preach to you that there's hope, that there's life, that there's, there's joy in anything other than what Jesus has done, curse us. Let us be cursed. This is the gravity of Paul's deep recognition and belief in the gospel. It's solitary nature. This is the link that he's willing to go. He's saying, put me in there if I say anything contrary to this. The gospel is everything. There is no other gospel. There's no other good news. So God is the source. God is the source. We see the substance in Jesus and what he has done in his life, death, and resurrection. The solitary nature that there is no other gospel. And finally, the sufficiency of the gospel. How do you combat this idea, and quite frankly for us in a modern world, this, this inclination that we have that like God is going to love me more if I do the right things. If I'll quit sinning, if I'll put a, a stop to these things. And we got it backwards. It's distorted. This is why we preach consistently believing in the gospel. Because it's only believing in the gospel that will cause us to live in its reality. There's no way for us to behave. And quite frankly, that's just not what this is all about. But start with behavior and see how far you get. It's not transformative. It's a band-aid that's going to get ripped off. It's not even a strong band-aid. Have you ever, have you ever gotten dollar store band-aids? Have you ever like gotten, like, and no, no offense to the dollar store, they're good people, but those band-aids, like, they just don't stick to you on any level at all. This is like one world where like, I'm not always a brand guy, but all right, I'm going with the brand on this one. Get the good band-aids, you guys. Um, truly. But these things, these things don't work. Trying to behave doesn't work. That's not transformative. That's a fix. No, the gospel transforms you. When you believe in, trust in, rest in what Christ has done for you, life is new. And it is fully sufficient. It's once and for all. There's nothing that needs to be added. Again, look back up to verse 4. And when you see those words, deliver us. What Christ has done, there is finality. There's nothing else for us to do. We distort the gospel when we proclaim that Christ is not enough. I struggle with that. Because often... I believe the lie of the enemy that I think Jesus loves me if I. I've been delivered if. These things are not contingent or conditional based on us. This is the glorious beauty of the gospel that it is sufficient to deliver us. It doesn't need a thing, there is no extra. And that when we add anything to the gospel, if I, if I believe the lie that Christ saved me at some moment in the past, but it's my job to stay saved, then here's the, here's the reality, brother and sister. We're not believing the gospel. The gospel is sufficient. What Jesus has done and his life, his death, his resurrection is sufficient for us. This whole book, and we're going to see this over the next couple of weeks, is really concerned with the doctrine of justification by faith. Christ does for us 
what we cannot do for ourselves. Let's look to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. We looked at this the last couple of weeks. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it says this, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Every time we read the scriptures, we ought to say it, we ought to think it, we ought to, we ought to recognize it. But thanks be to God that I couldn't do anything. I could not come to him. He came to me. and He came to you. We sang this truth this morning. The Holy Spirit conceiving Christ the Son, the incarnation, Jesus comes and takes on our flesh so that we can be reconciled to God through his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And now he is ascended and sitting at the right hand of the Father. So what do we do with all this? If this is true, what do we do with the fact that the source, it comes from God, the substance is what Jesus has done There's a solitary nature. There's no other gospel. It's fully sufficient. We're in a place this morning where we we have this beautiful opportunity to, one, and we say this every week, but it is the application every week, to believe the gospel, to rest in this, to trust in this. We're going to walk through Galatians over a period of weeks, and one of the most incredible things is going to emerge. We're going to see that the gospel is not as Keller and some others might call it, this thing where people would say... Keller would elicit it in this way that people would say that, oh, well, well, the gospel is like the ABCs of Christianity. That's that beginning thing you do. And he says, no, it's the A to Z. It's everything. It's the gospel for every single moment of our life. So we get the opportunity today to yet again to trust in, to rest in the sufficiency, the solitary nature, the true substance. All of this comes from the source God. It's what God has done. We get to rest in that. And here's the other thing we get to do. We get to really examine our lives. And as you walk throughout this week, this would be my encouragement. As you talk to, to folks in community that you gather with, examine yourself and say, man, what's the gospel that I believe? What's the gospel that I believe? Do I believe in a gospel where I think that this depends on me? Do I believe in a gospel of works where I have to do these things? Or do I rest in the sufficiency of what Christ has done? Or do I believe in a gospel of of prosperity? That the good news of life is that Jesus has come to give me all the stuff that I want and make me super comfortable? That's a a version of gospel that people believe. And I'm not talking about people out there. I'm talking about us in here. I'm talking about you and me. Examine yourself this week. Have conversations with your spouse, with your friends, with your community. Let's get to the heart of understanding. Man, do we believe the gospel? And let's be honest about that. And together, we don't have to be embarrassed. We don't have to be ashamed. Let's just repent. Let's just repent of that. And instead of turning away from the true gospel, let's rest in it. No better way to proclaim it to the world outside us, to your brothers and sisters around you, and ultimately to have God, and this is the crux, proclaim it to you, than to come this morning to this table. So I want to invite 
I want to invite our folks that are serving communion this morning. Pastors and deacons that are going to come and serve. To come to the table to taste and see the goodness of God that we sang about. To come and live in it. This is 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 26. And you're going to recognize some of the language because it's 1 Corinthians language like we read earlier. Paul writes and he says, For I received from the Lord, so it's not from him, it's outside him. This is not a ritual that comes of man. The source is God himself. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God that you and I have a tangible, a physical way of receiving and understanding the deep truth of the gospel. So this morning, you'll get an opportunity to come and pick up this piece of bread and this is like the quality stuff, all right? This bread is small. It is meager. But when you put this on your tongue, you will feel it. And here's the beauty of the gospel that God gives us even in, our, in a tactile way, in a, in a way we can touch. So real was the body of Christ, just as this bread. This bread exists, it's real, it's here, I touch it, I feel it right now. So real was Christ's body, broken for us, for our sins, to deliver us from this present evil age. And this morning you'll also take the cup, and you will take this cup, and you will have the gospel proclaimed to you that if you've trusted in Christ, you experience this as a member of, a part of God's family, the new covenant in Jesus' blood shed for us so that we could be united to him. So this morning, here, here's, here's the request. I, I'd love for you to come to the table. If you've trusted in Christ as Lord and Savior, come to this table. Come eat, come taste, and see the goodness of God. If you have not trusted in Christ, you need to know that this is not a ritual that we do in such a way that you do this thing and this magical thing happens. No, instead, this is a proclamation of the gospel to us. If you've yet to believe in Christ... I would ask you to refrain. Ultimately, I would ask you to do this. To beg God, to ask God to come to you and to save you. To profess that you believe in Jesus and what he's done for you. And you long to trust in him. And then afterwards, come find any of us after this service is over. So if you will, stand and bow your head with me. We're going to take the opportunity to come this morning and celebrate, to rejoice, to taste and see that the Lord is good. There is no other gospel. And we get to relish in the beauty of that this morning. Heavenly Father, would you cause us to see, Father, that this good news is from you. It's from outside of this world. It is truly otherworldly. Is news from the heavens that, that Christ has come to us. And Father, would you cause us to believe in what you've done for us, that even the substance of this meal we'll eat this morning is a picture of 
the true substance of your son Jesus and what he's done for us in his life, death, and resurrection. God, remind us that there is no other gospel and that we don't need another when there's nothing else. Jesus has truly paid it all. God, as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, remind us of this truth. May we rejoice and celebrate together. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Two things about this. We say this a decent amount, but I grew up in a culture, in a world where this was like really, really somber. It was really, really quiet. Like if you were a child, you didn't didn't get out of line. You didn't speak and all that stuff. Um, This is a meal for God's family. I just, I don't go to meals like that. Like one, I'm not invited to them probably, and that's fair. But two, that's not how we eat together. We're the people of God. You come to this table and you smile. You come to this table and you rejoice if you want to. You talk in line with the people that are there. This is a meal you're eating together. Rejoice with the friends, the family of God. And I would encourage you to, to, in the best of your ability, don't come to this table alone. This is a table where we recognize what Christ has done, not for us merely as individuals, but for all of us. So keep those two things in mind and now come. Come and die and taste and see that the Lord is good.